Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Kings 19. I invite you to turn there, 1 Kings 19. We'll read the first 15 verses. Actually, we'll read the verse 18 of that chapter. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. These words. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in, went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave Behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, 
the son of Shebat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. That's our reading from God's holy word, dear friends. We've all heard of pastoral burnout. Well, here we have prophet burnout, prophetic burnout, a used up, beaten up, discouraged, faith faltering Elijah. Some people, I read one commentator, doesn't want to read it that way. They can't take, can't stand, I guess, the idea that one of God's servants can falter. There's churches like that. How dare a pastor falter? But don't you? Your faith is always sturdy and strong and steadfast and tough and mighty and confident and hopeful and onward march. Uh, You're never wondering what God's doing, why it's turning out like this. Why all your hard work came to that? Why all your prayers have reached this pinnacle that is, well, anthills do better. (laughs) We all have. And if it's not ever happened to you, the devil's leaving his gloves off you because he doesn't need to lay a glove on you. You're, You're spoiled already or deceived. Even Jesus suffers the trial of living by faith and waiting upon God to answer prayer, to build kingdom come. Even Jesus. Here in 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah's faltering faith meet, meets up with unfaltering faithfulness, God's faithfulness. Because we do face disappointments, the devil does strike us, wound us. There, there is an ongoing battle of seed of woman, seed of serpent, and we do get bruised, and it is a struggle. So we, what we find here at first is that, well, what brings on this faltering faith? It's elicited by hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness prompting him to run away. And then we see that having run away, he makes it to Horeb and wants to fade away. And yet God patiently instructs him. And then finally, we see that faltering faith, including our own, is overcome by God's faithfulness as he orchestrates new beginnings. So that's where we're heading this morning. This whole situation in 1 Kings 19, 19 seems like a dead end, and it's so surprising because there had just been the big event at Mount Carmel 
and the, the big trial, whose God is God? And that's where it picks up. Elijah, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. It was 450 prophets of Baal to just one Elijah, one prophet of the Lord. And the prophets of Baal pleaded to Baal, answer us. They slashed themselves, the blood gushed, they raved. It was a spectacle. It was a horror. And nothing happened. And Jezebel, the same Elijah who spoke, and there's been drought in the land all this time, he lifts his voice to heaven, and a fire comes and consumes everything, laps up all the water in the trenches, and the people kept shouting, the Lord, the Lord, he's God, he's God. They kept saying it over and over. And not only that, they seized the prophets of Baal and killed them all. And if you notice, if you notice Jezebel, it's raining too at his word. That's Ahab, discouraged, defeated. But Jezebel sets her jaw, stands straight. Well, I'll see him dead. I'm not impressed. She, she suppresses the truth of Mount Carmel in unrighteousness. Now, we always want to think if unbelievers, our neighbors, an unbelieving uncle, friend, co-worker, if they just could witness some powerful miracle, their unbelief would melt into a puddle and they would be on our side. It's not true. That's not what saves someone just seeing a miracle. Many people doubt the miracles they see. It's rather her staunch pushing back against miracle and testimony and victory. Her spining up and pushing back against the God of faith that makes Elijah's faith falter, wilt. So she says, she sends a messenger. So may the gods, still calling upon the gods, may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, the life of one of those dead Baal prophets. And we're told in verse 3 he was afraid wouldn't you be? And he rose and ran for his life. An army is against me. We're told in the, in the description, here he goes south. He reaches the southern, southern town of Bathsheba. And he leaves his servant there. And then he further journeys as far as he could go with all of his strength, a whole day's journey until he lays exhausted and he finds a little shade under a broom tree, a bush. And he asks God that he might die. Now sometimes we can be depressed enough, things can go sideways in our life enough, we can be discouraged enough, 
that maybe we have such kinds of thoughts. We certainly don't encourage that at all, but it happens. But here he verbalizes it to the Lord. Lord, take my life. I'm done. Take it. It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, verse 4, for I am no better than my father's. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith, and I've lost. He is a broken soul. It's important that, yes, he's a biblical hero, but you don't put your faith in Elijah. He's not the one to come. You don't put your hope and trust in Elijah. In fact, Elijah will later offer his complaint to God why he wants to die, why he's used up, why it's all come to nothing. And so he looks out and and we can sometimes find ourselves rather beaten up and defeated of faith too, questioning God's timing, what God's up to. Remember the psalmist. Always, when I was young, I never really got the psalmist. They're always crying, whining, complaining. <laughs> this psalmist, what a whiner. Enough already. And then you live some life, and these words are yours. Does God see? Is God paying attention? Does God see my heart, my hurt, my brokenness, my longing? Does he see the enemies that surround us individually? Does he see the enemies that surround the church? Does he see all the evildoers getting away with it? That they're being blessed and we struggle? God, what are you doing? Our life hasn't been threatened. In his flight, he keeps running backwards. Remember, he's on his way now to Horeb, but to even do that, an angel intervenes for him. It's remarkable because God's faithfulness comes to this one who's faltering in faith and an angel helps him run away, run to God. And we tell that, arise and eat, and he prepares this food for him and he sleeps in his exhaustion and then it touches him again, arise and eat, the journey's too great for you. And then we're told from that miracle bread, miracle water, he goes 40 days and 40 nights, marches all the way back to Horeb, to Sinai, where it all began. But understand, he's going backwards because it was from Sinai, from Horeb, that the marching orders were given, the fights that way, promised lands that way, kingdom come is onward march. And now he, the prophetic word, is, is taking himself out of promised land, out of the fight, out of the battle, out of con the conquest, and going back, Moses like where it had started. Now, of course, 40 days and 40 nights is pay attention language in the Bible. 
pay attention language. Moses, it had rained 40 days, 40 nights, the flood, judgment. Moses, 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, starved but preserved and receives the law, the marching orders. The gospel task is for given people to go be a blessing that God's kingdom can have. One little sliver of real estate to start the march to kingdom come. And then we know, too, Israel was 40 years in the wilderness prior to that, suffering for her unbelief and breaking of God's way. And Jesus would undergo a trial like this, retracing Israel's steps in his own wilderness temptation. So this is listen-up language. Elijah's flight to Mount Horeb isn't just an interesting place. It is a deflated faith reversing the exodus. And it's as if in his faltering faith he had said, the gates of hell did too prevail against the church. And so when he arrives there, this cave, God has a question for his prophet. For this prophet has removed word of God from the land, gospel from the land, even a word of judgment from the land, confrontation with evil from the land, all because unbelief fought back. Unbelief was unimpressed. Unbelief had spine. It's important we understand that. Wherever there's reformation, the whole world with Luther, they said, you're right, Luther, we give up, we give in, you're right, we're wrong. And he rode off on a white horse into the sunset. Of course not. After reformation came counter Reformation against the Reformation. A richer, more learned, wider, more populated, bigger opponent said no to Reformation. It didn't get easier after Luther, it got harder. Jesus conquers death resurrected from the grave. The devil says, I give up, you win. No, he goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Maybe one of your children, maybe you. A young person makes profession of faith. Stands up, I believe. Jesus is everything to me. I am a sinner. He's my Savior. I'm going to live for him forever. He owns me. He's my only comfort in life and in death. Oh, now your life will tumble out easier. Maybe more likely he'll throw new temptations in your path and test that faith you've boldly professed. We North American Christians... We're not like other Christians that actually have to worry about their property, 
or their lives or imprisonment. There are Christians like that. Puts a different spin on your faith, doesn't it? I believe in Jesus. I have the American dream. I'm I'm living it well. I'm 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 doing what everyone how it's supposed to be in this land. But there's a lot of God's children that never lay a glove on the American dream. They just love Jesus in their poverty, in their want, in their oppression, in their difficulty. And then have we lost ear of how the devil seduces us? Because it's a tough thing to say, my only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, my belong body and soul, life and in death with my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, but I chase something else. I live for something else. I want something else. And if I can't have it, I'm beaten up and defeated and questioning God. So what makes your faith wilt? I mean, Jesus was pretty upfront with us. You want to follow me? You need to die. You have to take up your own cross. And when you take up a cross, you're going to your crucifixion. You have to die. That's hard. That's a tough path. You see, God knows what he's doing. He knows how to meet faltering faith with his own faithfulness. He knows the day of salvation. He knows how to arrange times and places. He knows who are orphans and who need comforter and counselor. He knows doubt and temptation, trials in your home, difficulties with your children, a business situation that's frustrating. He also knows our times and what's going on. He knows all the political scheming, all the lies. He's not asleep, he knows. And he can lift a nation to be a punisher, even as it's motivated by its own motives. Admit it, sometimes our faith falters as we confront hard-hearted unbelief, a woke culture that seems to have all the big shots on their side against you, against us. Well, Elijah makes it to Horeb, and he kind of comes to offer his hopeless resignation. It begins with God asking him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's almost like God is saying, the battle's that way. What are you doing here? Well, he has his, his speech well rehearsed. I, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm the last one. Now remember, Israel had been commissioned to be a covenant-keeping people. They've broken covenant. 
They're covenant breakers. They were a people who were to build a temple and offer faithful worship accordingly. They've thrown down the altars. They were a people to live out of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. They've killed your prophets. They want to kill me. I'm done. Talk about faltering faith. We might say he's having a pity party. That's probably not very pitying toward him, though. Because we struggle, too. Now, I do want to make something very clear here. There's only ever been one who's the only one left. And that was Jesus. The only one to hang on the cross to bear our sins. The only one who could cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The only one. So that we would never be that one. Only him. Let's be clear on that. Elijah comes there and God offers this patient instruction. Doesn't he? What happens? He goes to the entrance there, calls him out to him. How does he describe it there? Verse 11, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord, and and behold, the Lord passed by. First with the wind, a great tornadic wind rock-crushing wind, Sinai power of smoke and darkness and fire and, and mystery and the awesome power of God passes before... God was not in the wind. See, we like the idea of wind. Yes, Lord. Break the world, Lord. Damn the world, Lord. Bring you the winds of judgment. Pound them, Lord. Slaughter them, Lord. Get justice, Lord. Let us win that way, Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. There's Jezebels out there trying to kill us. Next comes earthquake. Yes, earthquake. Everything's scary with earthquake. Building's dangerous. Cave is deadly with earthquake. No one wants an earthquake. Earthquake them, Lord. Get them, Lord, with earthquake. Judge the peoples of the earth. But he wasn't in the earthquake. Fire. Okay? Torch them. Burn them. Show them. Send some hell on earth to them now. Bring victory, Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. And then came the ESV. How does it translate it here? A whisper. Then came that thin silence of God. And that's where God was. That's why he covers his head in the cloak and goes out. He meets God not 
in a tornadic wind of rock-crushing power, not an earthquake that breaks and everything falls, not in fire that devours everything, not all the stuff that impresses and how we view victory. Instead, in a very silent voice. Think about that. Isn't that the way Christ builds his church? Did God have to crush you with a rock? Or did he only with his soft whispering word have to break your heart of stone? Did God have to send an earthquake upon you? Or did he, with his word, make you quake with joy for his love? Did God have to send a fire that torches you and then a kind of remedial cleansing through fire that makes you believe? Or did God send the fire of His Spirit to ignite you to faith? That is, through His whisper, His Word. I think it's so important for us to really grasp, to really believe what God does here for us because it's his way to build his church and it's his way forward to teach his prophet in due time there will be indeed wind and earthquake and fire of judgment but first you need to hear the whisper of gospel to save it's a message for the church because as we live in a time in which we want to huddle and hide and feel vulnerable in the culture we haven't felt too vulnerable in. We've always felt the secularism around us, and we've always known it was a temptation that threatens, but now sometimes we can almost feel like there's a political, there's a legal, there's a physical danger to us. Perhaps a little ill at ease in our society from where we were. And now, Lord, time for wind, time for earthquake, time for fire. And Jesus says, no, time for gospel to reach the nations. Israel had the first great commission of conquest, and now the church has been sent forth with the second great commission of conquest. But not by a sword of steel, but by the sword of the Spirit. And we get deflated and discouraged in that task. Sometimes we get deflated and discouraged because a member of our own church walks away, falls away, maybe even viciously, angrily, denounces the God of love and the Prince of Peace. He's still whispering his word of salvation to us in the quiet power of what he says. This is what Elijah needed to know. This is what Elijah needs. He, he has a God who is unfaltering in his faithfulness, so your faith should never falter. When our faith is weak, it's because we're looking here, not there. 
We're seeing what we can do and what we can manipulate and what we can make happen instead of what God simply makes so, even beyond ways we could ever calculate. Have mercy on us, Lord. Now notice what he does with Elijah through all this. He gives him kind of a recommissioning. Go, return, verse 15, on your way to the wilderness up to Damascus. So you're going to go all the way back, and then all the way, you're going to go all the way north, north, north to Damascus. And here's what you're going to do. Lop off some heads? No, you're not going to do that. It's kind of anticlimactic as you see how God orchestrates new beginnings here. There's going to be some anointings. Are you excited now? Um, When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Assyria. Syria? Syria? A foreign power? A foreign nation? Yep. You see, I'm going to make that king the punisher of Israel. And you're going to uh, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel, and he's going to be the punisher of Jezebel. And also you'll anoint Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abel Meholah to be prophet in your place. You have fought the good fight. You have finished the race, just not quite yet. And it's actually through Elisha all this will take place. And those who escape Jehu shall not escape Elisha. But by the way, why we're at it, You're not the only one left. While your faith is faltering and you're doubting God, I leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, God knows better than we ever will how it's going to be. God knows where we're at as church, where we need change. God knows how to use a nation to punish a nation. He knows how to lift up a president to punish a people. He knows how to orchestrate an economy to wake up and look to him. Because you don't live by your wallet and you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Remember John the Baptist said from these stones, put a a pile of pea gravel out in the drive. And Lord, if he wants, can lift up children for Jesus. We need to listen to the whisper of the gospel in our ears and turn our hearts back in faith to the God who's able because he knows where we falter, where we hurt, where we doubt, where we question, 
What's the future? A little child in your arms. And what is the next 80, 90 years for such a child in this land? What is it in any land? We need to heed the words of Jesus. Look to him. Let's, let's just say we get marginalized, penalized. Just say, maybe, perhaps not, maybe so. It gets harder, tougher. There's real suffering. Maybe poverty. Poverty! But many of the people who immigrated from the old country came to this land in poverty. Not abundance. In faith and weakness. Not having life in their pocket. Does your faith falter? The Jezebels of the world will menace us, threaten us, to destroy us, but God will ever keep the 7,000 and so many more who do not bow the knee. Let's not bow the knee. Let's bow the knee only to Jesus with a faith in Him. It's not because our faith is so strong, but because He is. Amen. Lord, your church is oppressed. We're oppressed. The devil would devour us. We need your mercy and your help. We ask your mercy and your help upon us. All for Jesus' sake. Amen.